Today's message uh, it weighed very heavily on my heart as I was preparing it. Uh, I don't know if this will be a controversial message to some of you, but uh, I just pray that God would be able to speak through today's sermon. Um, sorry to start on a bit of a heavy note, but if you are new here, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was just during the worship, I was just reading over my notes, and yeah, this this. I think it's the first message that's weighed so heavily uh, ever since I started at FLM. Um, so I do hope that you are blessed through today's sermon. But again, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, it's good to see you guys here. Um, I know it's not easy to come to a new church uh, on a Sunday, but it is great to have you here. So thank you for joining us. It is awesome to worship alongside you. And uh, just as I shared to the other members, I hope this message today is a blessing to you as well. Um, I think the other thing that's weighed heavily on my heart as well is the news that broke out uh, about what's happening in Israel and Palestine yesterday. Uh, I saw horrific footage um, of the war that's broken out. Please pray. Uh, doesn't matter where your political allegiances lie. Uh, we, we have a duty to pray for those that are suffering, um, for families that have been impacted. Uh, we, we should be praying that this situation, uh, that God would resolve it speedily. On that note, uh, we are going to jump into today's word. Uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 22. The word of God reads, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word today that your voice would be clear, that our hearts would be humble, 
and that through the lenses of Scripture, we would be careful to examine our hearts, our walk, our journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church to examine yourselves and test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And so, Lord, I pray that today's word wouldn't be a pure word of condemnation, but a word of restoration to those that need it. A word of careful examination. So, Lord, I know I ask this each week, but especially today, may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember one instance in my life after I got saved where I entered into a conference, a church, and I felt the full weight of the Holy Spirit. It was a heavy, heavy weight. Sorry, there's a fly. It was a heavy weight. And I remember as I was hearing the preacher share God's word from Romans, I remember the whole room, every individual was brought to a brokenness and a repentance. And the weight of the Holy Spirit was so heavy, I looked around. And as the preacher preached, no one dared to move. It was one of the rare instances in my life in ministry that I can say I genuinely felt the Spirit of God moving to bring an entire room of people to absolute holy brokenness. And since then, I've seen in ministry so many instances of counterfeit spirits, misinterpretations by people that claim to have felt the Spirit of God move. And I don't say this with any arrogant intent. But if you feel the Holy Spirit genuinely move, you recognize a counterfeit spirit when you see it. And we're going to look at what it means for the Holy Spirit to move in today's passage. Because I think it's very important for us to have an understanding of what the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit actually is. Now, we saw in the last few weeks that Jesus began a trip from Galilee down towards Judea and Jerusalem as we entered the second half of Mark's gospel. And as Jesus was making his way, remember I said that Jews traditionally didn't move directly south, but they avoided the region of Samaria almost as a passive-aggressive way to stick their noses up at the Samaritans, they would cross the Jordan River and take a long route and travel through a region called Perea. And it was in Perea that Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees who attempt to trap Jesus with a question about divorce. And I said trap because it was quite deliberate and clever on their part because they were in Perea, a region that was ruled by Herod Antipas. 
The same Herod that killed John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And their plan was to get Jesus to trap him by getting him to give the same response, to share the same opinion on divorce that had John the Baptist killed. But instead of the same response, Jesus gave an even deeper response. He explained how God's desire for us isn't to look for loopholes around God's law. That God's intent isn't for us to push the envelope further and further and say, how much further can I push this before it actually becomes sin? But to understand the heart of God when it comes to the, his intention for, for marriage, that man and wife, God's intent is for them to be one flesh forever until death. And then we come to today's passage, which is probably one of my most favorite passages in Mark's gospel. I always wanted to be an evangelist or a revivalist uh, when I first entered into ministry, and this is one of my favorite passages to preach from. It's a passage that contains two movements, and the first movement begins in verses 13 to 16 with a reference once again to children in the context of God's kingdom. And then the second movement, the second part, begins in 17 to 22, and it focuses on an encounter that Jesus has with a rich young man or the rich young ruler, if you're more familiar with other accounts in other Gospels. And the reason I love this passage so much is because it strikes at the heart of the Gospel and it strikes at the heart of what the role of the Holy Spirit actually is meant to be in the life of a believer. And we're going to do something a little unusual in today's sermon. Uh, I mentioned that there's two movements in the passage, but instead of working our way from beginning to end chronologically, uh, we're going to begin with the last movement and then work our way backwards. And so from verse 17, we see that Jesus, following his encounter with the Pharisees, he has an encounter with a rich young man probably good-looking, has everything going on in life for him. And this young man, verse 17, it says, As he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, unlike the Pharisees from last week's passage, who wanted to trap Jesus with a question about the law, the body language of this young man in today's passage shows that he was actually sincere. He was Genuine in asking this question, and he was desperate. And we know he was desperate because he didn't just walk up to Jesus, he ran up to Jesus and didn't just run up to him, but he threw himself down on his knees physically before Jesus as a sign of respect and desperation. And he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Whilst the Pharisees asked a question about divorce to find the loophole about God's law, this man asks a question about salvation, about eternal life. And it was interesting that this man, of all people within Jewish society, came out of desperation to ask Jesus this, and I'll explain why it's interesting in a minute. But Jesus, instead of immediately responding to this man's question, he asks him a question in verse 18 says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And all my Muslim friends love this verse 
because they come up to me and they say, Jay, look, he says it's not God. They take this as a proof text from Jesus to say that, you know, make it clear. Why do you call me good? Only God's good. I'm not God. Or only God is good. I'm not God. And they, they love to point this out to me. Like every Muslim friend I have loves this verse. However, if you look at the context of this verse in the rest of Scripture, you find that Jesus isn't saying that he's not God. But if you look at the rest of Scripture, you'll find Jesus unequivocally and undisputably does declare that he is God. John 8, 58, 59 says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which is the covenant name Yahweh that God gives Moses in the Exodus. And after Jesus says, I am, the Jews pick up stones to kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you're wondering, well, how do we know that the Word was God? Later on in that chapter, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The only individual in Scripture that you can attribute this to is Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, the Father, God the Father, prays to God the Son and says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, refers to the Son as God. And so if we have an understanding of the, the Scriptures in its entirety, that it points to Jesus being divine, that we understand the context of today's Verse, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Because Jesus isn't saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not God. Don't, don't call me good because like, only God's good. That's not what he's saying. Because if you read through Mark's gospel, up until now, he's been performing signs and wonders to prove his godship. And so this verse, it's almost like he's telling the man, have a very careful think about who you're talking to right now. The identity of who it is that's standing before you now. And after he says this, Jesus says to the man in verse 19, you know the commandments in response to his question about salvation. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Do these commandments sound familiar? If you grew up in the church, it should. These are part of the Ten Commandments. But interestingly, these, it's six of them. It's not all of them. Jesus cites off commandments from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't begin from a commandment one. He begins from commandment five. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He quotes the last six commandments. And he says to the man, have you done these commandments? And this man, almost with a sense of pride, says, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. From the moment I was born, no problems. All these commandments that you've just mentioned, never killed anyone, never committed adultery, never lied, I honored my mother and my father, never coveted, never did any of these things, done. No problems. And then verses 21 and 22 then read, Jesus looking at him, loved him, 
and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What happened? What did Jesus mean by this? To sell everything. Is Jesus saying that you have to take a vow of poverty if you want to make it into heaven? That you can't, you know, if you want to get into heaven, you can't have any property or assets to your name? Is that what he's saying? Thankfully not. To understand what he means by this, you have to look back at the commandments that he cited earlier to the young man. Because remember, he didn't cite all of them. He cited the last six of the Ten Commandments. He deliberately listed the last six because if you look at this, the Ten Commandments as a whole, they, they're divided into two sections. The first four and the last six. The first four have everything to do with God, your relationship with God. The first four. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse or use the Lord's name in vain. And number four. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The first four have everything to do with your relationship and your worship of God. But the last six are the ones that Jesus cites to this man. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. These last six have everything to do with your relationship with people, your neighbor. This is why Jesus, later on in Mark's gospel, and I think in Matthew's gospel, he, he, he says the greatest two commandments are to do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands summarize and embody the whole of the Ten Commandments. Because the first four commandments, you would fulfill these if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill, lie, commit adultery, are you? Now, going back to this conversation, the man, by declaring these last six commandments, I've kept them, no problems. He's saying my relationship with people is impeccable. Ask anyone in my community. My reputation amongst the people speaks for itself. Ten Commandments, no problems. And so to this response, Jesus, knowing he would respond like this, then tells the man, go sell everything. Okay, you said Ten Commandments, no problem. Let's start with number one. You shall have no other gods. And this command to sell everything is Jesus' slap in the face to this guy saying, money, wealth has become your God. Let's see. Sell everything. Let's see if you can find your satisfaction in having treasures in heaven. Sell everything. And the man immediately was cut to the heart. He doesn't try to debate Jesus. He doesn't try to say, no, 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 I, I love God. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got money, but you can't say that I don't worship, that I value money over God. He doesn't argue. But he realizes in that instant that despite how hard he's tried to live up until this point, to live a life of good repute, he might have obeyed all the commandments about neighbors, 
relationships with neighbors. But when it comes to relationship with God, he fails at step one. The very first commandment. Money, he realizes, is his God. And do you know what I love about this passage? Is that Mark records specific details. And one of the things I love that he records is that he's intentional to note that Jesus loved this man. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Why? Well, other than the fact that God so loves the world, um, I think part of the reason why Mark recorded this was because this man was genuine. He was sincere in his desire to receive eternal life. Like this guy had everything going for him. He had a good reputation in society, had all the money, had all the respect. This guy didn't really need anything else from a secular perspective. And yet he, he comes to Jesus in desperation. You know what? Even though this man, after Jesus confronts him about commandment one, even though he walks away disheartened and sorrowful, I genuinely believe that this sorrow was a godly sorrow. Because up until now, this man thought he was a shoo-in for heaven. He thought, I've, I've done everything. Everything within my power to earn my place in heaven. I've done, I, he probably came thinking, you know, of all the people. I'm rich, I'm young, I'm good looking, I love God's word, I obey it the best I can. I go to synagogue and worship, I do everything. I give to the poor, I've got, I'm, I'm just, you know, like you go to church, I'm the it guy. The girl that all the, girl, the guy that all the girls want to marry. Like I'm that guy. And yet, the moment Jesus confronts him on commandment one, he shows no resistance. Because he understands, what's the point of working so hard if you're going to fail at the starting gate? And I say that I genuinely believe this was a godly sorrow. Because I've tried to witness to so many people I've presented the gospel in so many ways to so many people, and yet I've met people, no matter how much I share the word of God with them, they never come to this place. They keep pushing on, thinking, I can trust in myself. I just need to be a good guy. But in this instant, this one short exchange, this man recognizes there is no hope within himself. And the reason... Why I said I love this passage is because in so many ways, this is where the gospel has to begin. And I want everyone at full life, everyone that sits here today and is listening online to be clear on this. This is where I said this, this message is weighed very, very heavily on my heart. Because many Christians use language and terminology about the Holy Spirit and revival 
and being born again, and it's great. I love it. But you have to understand that true revival in Scripture and throughout the vast majority of Christian history, true revival has never been about you struggling with certain problems in life and then you coming to God and then God giving you a solution. That's not what revival is. True revival has never been about you going to a revival conference and feeling, oh yeah, I feel my heart's been warmed. I'm feeling happy now. And I thought a warmth in my heart. Or I got really into the song. Or the sermon was really great. It was a very engaging sermon and I felt it really challenged me. That's not what revival is. And I would argue that's primarily not even the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you look through scripture and through Christian history, the key ministry of the Holy Spirit and the heart of true revival throughout scripture and the history of the church has been to bring a holy conviction of sin onto the heart of people God has chosen. That as you stand before a holy God, you recognize the depravity of your sinfulness. You recognize the hopelessness of trusting in yourself to be a good person. To understand that before God, there is nothing that you can say or do to justify to God why I belong in heaven. It's a recognition of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag before a holy God. And I've been to a lot of revival conferences over the years, and I've seen so many things, you know, so many environments where it was just a manufactured artificial environment to kind of conjure up a human response where the lights are dimmed just right, the music is playing with the right genre, And the speaker is speaking in such a way to tickle your emotions. To cause maybe a stirring in your heart and get you to think that that is revival. And I say this in love. That isn't revival. True revival is the shattering of your heart with a godly sorrow as you recognize that there is no integrity in and of yourself that you can trust in, that there is no righteousness of your own that you can cling to, to be accepted into the kingdom of God. This is why the early hymn writers, they recognize this. Anyone know Rock of Ages? Rock of Ages, Cliff. I'm a terrible singer. But it's one of the classic hymns. And the opening lines to verses 2 and 3 The hymn writer understood this. It begins, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the Lord's demands. Or nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. They understood. There is no hope that you can bank on in yourself. And I know this might sound controversial. And again, I genuinely say this in love. Because I genuinely believe this is what scripture 
preaches and teaches. And I say this as your pastor because I, I, I want to be crystal clear and honest with you. If you have never, ever felt a conviction over your sin, if you've never felt a brokenness over your sin where the Holy Spirit points your sin out to you, where he points out to you, Jay, you're trusting in yourself. You need to lay everything down and surrender your life to him. If you've never experienced a holy brokenness in your life ever, then I do not care whether you pray in tongues, whether you prophesy, or whether you can perform miracles. I don't care if you're an eloquent preacher. I don't care what Bible college you've come from. I don't care how much theology you have. If the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, a brokenness of your sin, is not present and has never been present in your life, then you have to question whether everything else in your life is legitimate. If the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is absent, then you have to question the integrity of all the secondary gifts. And you have to question whether you've received the Holy Spirit at all and whether you've received Christ at all. Because it's not until you reach that holy conviction over your sin, a recognition, a true God-given recognition of your hopeless state, that you, you know, until you get to this place, you'll never really understand your desperate need of Christ. Because until you recognize you desperately need Christ, what are you actually placing your faith in? And I've been in youth ministry for ages and I used to ask so many youth kids that went through the church system and I asked them, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? And they'll give me very generic answers. Oh, I believe he's God. I believe he's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, it means to believe that he existed. And scripture tells us even the devil believes that that exists. But for the true born again believer, what sets them apart? is that God has revealed to them into the very depths of their heart that you are depraved, you are born God-hating, you are rebellious. There is nothing good and in and of yourself. There is no integrity within yourself that can earn your place in heaven. And only God can reveal that to the sinner where he recognizes, I need Christ. My only hope is Christ. The only thing I can bank on to even have a shred of hope of entering into eternity is Christ. And then your faith really starts to be banked into Christ. And you recognize the worth of Christ and the value of Christ. And I think that's why this man ran to Christ in today's passage in desperation and knelt before him because he must have realized, I've done everything. I'm rich, I'm successful, I'm good-looking, I know God's word. I've obeyed God's word to the best of my ability. But he must have come to a point that I've done better than anyone I know. And yet there is something still lacking in my heart. There is an emptiness in my heart that is gnawing away at me, telling me that somehow this doesn't seem like it's enough. Something still feels lacking. And you know what? He was right. 
Because what the gospel reveals is that no matter how hard we try by our own strength to be a good person and earn our way into heaven, that endeavor will always, always, always lead to failure. And the world knows this. Even the non-religious world, secular world knows this. Hence why they coined that saying, nobody is perfect. And so that's what we see in the second movement. And then we go to the first movement of today's passage, verses 13 to 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this first movement and they, they think it means that we need to be pure like children, innocent like children to be able to receive the kingdom of God. But we've established in the second movement that no one is pure. You can do your best and never even come close to being pure. And we saw in the, the previous few weeks that that's not how the people in the New Testament viewed children. They saw children as like a, a burden this is a generation of kids that are unable to help themselves. They're, they're like leeches. They suck up the resources. They might not even live that long. But this is a generation that is dependent on everyone else for their resources and their survival. And so what Jesus is saying when he says you need to receive the kingdom of heaven like these children, he's saying firstly, like these children, you have to recognize you have no hope if you trust in yourself. Just like these children, if they were to trust in themselves for their own survival, there is nothing but death that awaits them. Not just in the New Testament times, today. If you have a newborn baby or if you have kids, why do we need to supervise them so they don't die? Like It's like you supervise children, you make sure they're safe, they're taken care of so they don't die. And Jesus is saying this is exactly how you receive the kingdom of God. You firstly recognize that you cannot save yourself. You cannot survive by depending on yourself. You can't survive spiritually and receive eternal life by trying to conjure up spiritual food and eternal life for yourself. No righteousness that you can create that will earn your place in heaven. Just like the rich young man, recognizing there is nothing that he can trust in and of himself. The second thing that Jesus is revealing is that you have to depend and cling onto something else to survive. And the gospel reveals that that something or someone else is him. Christ. Not because you clung to yourself, but by clinging to him. This is the only hope. And so, if you were to stand before the judgment seat of God one day, and God or an angel asked you, why do you think we should let you in? We've got a pretty good place here. Why do you think you deserve to be in here? 
Why do you deserve a place in the kingdom of God? Your response cannot be, because I'm a good person. I think, I'm a good guy. I'm rich. Gave money to the poor. Your only right response according to scripture and the gospel is, I don't. I don't deserve a place in heaven. There is nothing I can do or say to earn my place in this kingdom. However, I have banked everything in one person. All my hope, I've put all my eggs in one basket. The hope that God has ensured that Christ is enough. This promise of the gospel that Jesus is enough, this is the one thing I am clinging to for my only hope, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, and this is the only, only hope I have to stand upon to be allowed in. Now, I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe I'm getting older. Um, I am getting older. But there's so many, there's been so many things in the past few weeks and months uh, that have been making me very emotional. I don't know why. I, I'm, I, I never used to be an emotional person. Like I'd watch movies, never shed a tear. Like I'd laugh through like sad movies. And I don't know if it's an indication of my mental state. Or like maybe, I don't know. But a lot of things have been moving me to tears that never used to. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I shared with uh, Vicky and Nathan and Pastor Hong around the time of women's conference that I started to listen to a lot of songs from my youth. Um, and I mentioned they used to call me the onion because I make people cry the more they get to know me, the more they peel the layers away. Like, yeah. But I was very weird with the type of songs I used to listen to as well. I listened to everything. I listened to gangster rap. I listened to 90s pop music. I listened to 90s K-pop music. I used to listen to Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, Ray Charles. No, you guys don't know? Elvis, the Beatles. Uh, There used to be a group called The Animals. And that was my favorite song. The Animals had this song called um, House of the Rising Sun. YouTube, if you get a chance. Amazing song. But recently, as I listened to those songs, I started to get very emotional. Because as I listened to some of these songs, I, I could remember where I was and what was going on in my life when I first listened to those songs. House of the Rising Sun is a very precious song to me because it was a song I listened to uh, when my parents split up and my dad left. And as I listened to House of the... Every time I listen to it now, I just, my lips start to quiver. Like I'm with my wife when I'm driving and my lips just start to quiver. And my wife's like, what's, what's wrong with you? What's, what's the matter with you? There's other things that make me emotional now as well. I was driving through West Ride the other day to go to Kurong to look at some books. And on Victoria Road... Uh, there was a medical center called Westride Medical Center. And as I drove past it the other day, I saw that Westride Medical Center had closed down. This was the medical center I went to all the time growing up as a kid. I was sick a lot when I was younger, and my mom would always take me there. 
And with her broken English, she tried to communicate to the doctors what was wrong with me. I remember my mom would always get angry when I got sick. Because usually it's because like I didn't wear my jacket when it was cold. And, and then like if I start coughing, my mom would be like, shut up. Like, don't, don't cough in front of me. And then I'd be in Westride Medical Center like crying and trying to cough quietly so my mom wouldn't hear. But as I drove past and I saw it was closed forever, I started to get teary. And again, my wife was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, it's closed. So? What's the matter with you? And I think looking back, the reason I got teary was because all the memories I had of these places and these situations, they're gone forever. I'm never going to be able to relive those moments. And as I look back at those moments, I remember all the people that I encountered in my life that I thought would be around forever. And so many of them are gone. Some of them dead. Some of them I've just lost contact with. And then I look at those same group of people and I see how many of them disappointed me. Not that I was like judging them, but it's like, even my dad, I was like, this is the one guy I thought was Superman would be in my life forever. And he left us. And I realize as I get older and older, and as everything passes away, everything that I thought growing up that I could bank my hope in for stability and security, it's temporal. And I realize how foolish it is to bank my hope on things that are temporal and are going to pass away. And as time goes on, I'm still 30, so I'm, like I keep saying I'm older, I'm older. I'm still in the prime of my life. I'm 37. But I, even now I realize how futile it is to place my hope and my stability in things that are going to be gone. People that are going to be gone. There is only one thing, one thing in my life that's been consistent from day one up until now, and that's been Christ. One day, everything I have will be stripped away, and as I stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of my life, the only thing of eternal value I am going to have in my hand is Christ. And so... As your pastor, my hope and prayer is that you come to this realization as well. That your need of Christ isn't supplemental. It's not like the rich young man ruler that you've got everything going on in life and you just need a little bit of Jesus to make it that much more complete. But just like what the rich young man realized today, if you don't have Christ you could do your utmost from now until the day you die. If you don't have Christ, you're left with nothing. You know, we, we, we have a lot of leaders meetings and a common agenda item is how do we get people to come to church on time at 1.30? And I remember there was a period where I was like, I, was losing, I lose sleep about a lot of things. Like, how do we get people to just come on time? Why, why is that a mission? 
I don't know why, but this, maybe it's a generational thing. Why is that so hard? And I remember there was a period it was like, what can I do to get people to come by 1.30? And it's not just FLM, but it's like previous churches. It's, it's like a, maybe it's a generational problem. But that's not my concern anymore. My concern, my deepest concern, is for every single one of you in this room to know Christ truly. To know him. And the scriptures teach us that knowing him begins nowhere else except in a place of holy conviction and brokenness. An understanding of your hopeless state, a recognition that there is nothing in and of yourself that can earn your place with him. And the reason that is important, like I mentioned earlier, is that when you recognize, when the Holy Spirit reveals to you your broken state, when you receive from the Holy Spirit his primary purpose, a revelation of your brokenness and your depravity, it's only when you get to that place that you recognize your desperate need of a savior. And when you recognize your desperate need of a savior, that's when you run to Christ and fall on your knees before him, just like the rich young ruler, and say to Christ, what must I do to be saved? That's where it begins. And it's when you come to this place of Holy Spirit revealed brokenness, that's when you recognize how beautiful Christ really is. When you recognize he's your only hope and he's the one that God's given to you to be enough. You understand how beautiful he is, you understand how valuable he is, and you understand how precious he is. And when you get to this place, you realize he's worthy of all worship. 1.30, no problem. I'll be here at 1 o'clock to start praying so that my heart is ready to worship this precious Messiah. Do you recognize your need of Christ? Let's pray. Father, I think modern-day Christianity and the church has made Christianity and the gospel about so many different things. We've glamorized so many facets and aspects of the gospel. And I think we've forgotten where it's all meant to begin. In a place of holy brokenness a holy conviction over sin. So Lord, I pray for the FLM congregation and myself that we would do well to preach the gospel to ourselves daily and to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit from now until eternity to continuously reveal to us our brokenness and our need of Christ, 
that this would not become common or roll off our tongues too easily, but that we would stop and just think for a moment whenever we pray to you, whenever we open your word, whenever we reflect on the blessings of the gospel, Lord, we ask this because holy brokenness is something that only you can bring. And so, Lord, we, we want to do away with counterfeit spirits, manufactured emotions, and we want to feel the full weight and heaviness of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives whether we come to church or worship you at home or in the workplace or at school. That we would understand a genuine moving of the Holy Spirit when we see it and that we would embrace it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.